Good morning, everybody. Welcome to GBC. Uh, glad you're here. Happy Thanksgiving week. Um, you, if you're new here, you probably think we're going to do a, a sermon on Thanksgiving. Uh, we're we're going to do one on tongues. And so that's kind of a weird uh, deal. And, and I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things before we, we pray about this. Uh, there's probably not a passage in 1 Corinthians that I have more anticipated and sort of dreaded preaching on. Um, it, it's, it's hard. It's, you, you can study it for a long time and, and still come out in a lot of things unsure. And, and so it, it leaves me sort of in a, a, a vulnerable feeling position as, as a preacher who's supposed to preach with some authority. And, and, and the Word of God has authority. And um, there are some things that I, I just still don't totally know. And so um, I want you to know that. I, I want to say one other thing in, in terms of you guys as y'all interact with this passage. It's going to be a little bit technical. And there, there might be some of you who are like, I don't care about this. And like, you've kind of already decided whatever is right on this. And, and I get that. And here's the deal. We're a disciple-making church. And so whether you have it down or not, or whether you've decided and, you know, like, I, I don't care what it says. I, I know what I know, you know you're going to disciple someone who's going to have questions on this, okay? And so understanding this text, and I, I'm not trying to weaponize this text at all for anything. I, I just want people to understand this so that when people have questions, we can, can lovingly give some answers. And so hang in with me and put your thinking caps on and let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your grace. Thanks, God, that your word is amazing. Father, there are certainly some parts of this passage that, that I don't fully understand, and I pray that you'd help us just to, to understand as much as, as we can today and then help us to continue to learn going forward. And I pray, God, that we would see your word as authoritative, uh, like the authority. I pray that we would yield to your Holy Spirit, that, that we would learn from it in humility and apply it in, with conviction. And I pray that you'd do a great work and that somehow you'd make your church a little bit more of a beautiful bride today as, as we interact with this passage and, and try to understand the big major principles that are, are very clear. Uh, we love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I was at Denver Seminary, I had a class on worship, and one of the assignments for the class was that, that we would go to a worship service that was different than our tradition. And, and so we were 24 years old at the time, Mary and I were, and, and we decided to go to a place called the Victory Christian Center. The Victory Christian Center. It, it was definitely different than our tradition. I, I really didn't have much of a tradition. I, I didn't grow up going so often to church that I was in any way familiar with any one tradition. Mary grew up at the First United Methodist Church of Temple, Texas, and so that was very squarely her tradition, and the Victory Christian Center was, was not like First United Methodist Church in Temple, Texas, not even a little bit. Let me give you just a couple of things about it. Um, music, pretty dynamic. Some would say thumping. It, uh, it had a, they, they told us how much the sound system cost at the Victory Christian Center. It, it was about half the price of, of the overall expense of, of this whole facility. So it was, and, and they were utilizing every bit of it. It was loud. It was 
um, spirited, not necessarily uh, holy spirited, but enthusiastic. And, um, and it, was, it was pretty, it was, it was kind of fun, actually. Not going to lie. Um, the, the offering, the offering was special. Uh, it took about 30 minutes. Like, I, I, it was an assignment, so I was taking some notes. It, it, was, it was 29 minutes. Like, when I say about 30 minutes, that's not like, it was 29 minutes. So, the, the pastor had the entire congregation right before the offering chanting, we love to give. We love to give. Y'all want to join? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, and you're just like, man, this, this is kind of weird. This is a little bit different, right? Um, but after the sermon, which in hindsight was, um, was, was not super biblically accurate, I don't even remember the topic, but just kind of going, well, that, you know, I was in seminary. I was like, nope. Um, <laughs> after the sermon, there wasn't like a benediction and everyone leaves and goes and talks in the foyer or goes to lunch or anything. After the sermon, the, the pastor concluded uh, the, the sermon with, hey, nobody leaves here until they've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's errant. Um, and, and comes forward and, and has the gift of tongues. And if, if you're struggling with having the gift of tongues, someone up here will, will teach you how to have the gift of tongues. And, and so there was no dismissal. And, and Mary and I were, were standing, sitting about you know, four rows back, kind of, kind of right back in here. You know, and we we're kind of up toward the, the front. And, and so some people are coming up to get the gift of tongues. And, and some people around us were, were speaking in tongues. And it was kind of one of those deals where like every head bowed, every eyes closed. And, I, and so I'm, I'm kind of sitting there and just sort of taking it in, but eyes closed, whatever. And I open my eyes and I look over to, to sweet Mary Brazelton. She has her head bowed. I, I can assure you she did not have her eyes closed. She was, she was taking it all in. <laughs> and, um, and so we sat there for like 10 minutes. Uh, and y'all, that was the day that Mary Brazelton received her gift. It was awesome. <laughs> not really. She didn't. Um, but after like 10 minutes and, and like there's no dismissal, I, I look over to Mary and I'm like, hey, we can go like if you'd like. I mean, she was out of there like a shot out of a rifle. Like, <laughs> Anyway, I, I don't tell you that to make fun of anybody. I, I think there'll probably be some people from the Victory Christian Center in, in Denver who are going to be with us in heaven and, and I think they're going to be delightful people. I really do. Uh, my, my point in saying all of that is, is just to acknowledge that all of us have some sort of experiential bias on this topic. So, some of it could be kind of negative or weird, and, and so you, you have a reaction against it. And then some of you are like, no, no, that's, that's who I am. That, that's the place out of which I've come. And, and in either case, positive or negative, in order to understand 1 Corinthians 14, we're, we're going to have to get past our experiential bias. Because ultimately, we want to see what the text says to us, not what our experience says we can read into the text. Okay, so, so that's the, the first thing. Like, I get that we all have something, and, and some of us are scared to death of, of the topic of tongues. And, and I understand that. I really do. But the passage is here for a reason. And, and it is good. Whether you've experienced something that was good or not isn't essential. 
The passage is good. And so without further ado, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want y'all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The, The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. If we were going to summarize this paragraph, verses 1 through 5, and and just come up with a one-word summation, I I think the word would have to be build. And the reason I say it's got to be build is because build is used once in verse 3, twice in verse 4, and once in verse 5. So so four times in five verses, the word build is used, and the build, in fact, is the word that is the primary theme of this whole passage. It's not tongues, it's not prophecy. Tongues and prophecy are a means to the end. Ultimately, what Paul is after is the building up of the church. That's, That's the first thing that you have to understand. Building up the church is the primary intent. In fact, I would go on to say, that if love is the primary motivation, and and we started to see a hint of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when it says knowledge puffs up but love builds up. And then you see it in chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind. We we think it's about a a wedding. It's, It's not about a wedding. It's about using our gifts in a way that edifies the church, and, and it's a motivation in love. So if, if love is our primary motivation, the building up of the church then is the primary intent of the gifts, of the gifts that God has given us. He's given them to us that we might, in love, build up the church. And ultimately, verses 1 through 5 come to a conclusion. The one who prophesies builds up the church. The one who speaks in tongues builds up himself. That's what the text very clearly says. I won't be sure on everything. I'm really sure on that. Now, let's define our terms because this whole thing can be a little bit spooky, and I I get that. I I totally understand that. The the word tongues in in the Greek New Testament is a Greek word glossa, glossa. It it literally means tongue, like that thing, the thing in your mouth, a a tongue, but, but it also means a language or a dialect, okay? So tongue, glossa, means the literal tongue by which you speak, but it's, it's also a language or a dialect. Now, here's my first semi-hot take of the day. It's, it's not super hot because I'm not in a minority really, but this is controversial a little bit. This tongue, glossa, might be unknown to some people. Like it, it could be unknown to the speaker who's speaking it. It could be unknown to the people who are hearing it. It, it might be unknown to someone, but it's never unknowable. It's never unknowable, meaning it's not gibberish, meaning it's not something that can't be known or or couldn't be known. It's it's a language. I I don't know French, but that doesn't mean French is unknowable. And that's a little bit controversial, and you might or might not believe me, but here's why I believe that, okay? So I'm I'm just going to give you a little apologetic behind this position. I believe this because of the meaning of the word glossa. It means a dialect or a language. That 
whenever it's used, it's talking about a known dialect or language. I, I also believe it because Acts chapter 2, which is Pentecost, which is the first evidence of the speaking of tongues in the New Testament, it's known languages. In fact, if, if you don't know much about Acts chapter 2, there's a festival of Pentecost that occurs every year. And, and Jews who live you know, at the far end of the known world at that point would gravitate, migrate back to Jerusalem every year for the festival of Pentecost. And so what you have is a lot of people who are Jewish by faith, but they, they don't speak Aramaic. They, they don't speak Greek even. And so they've come in for this festival and, and they are meeting now the first Christians and, and people who in Acts chapter 2 are being indwelled by the Holy Spirit for the very first time in history. It's a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that that, that would happen. But these guys who are Jewish Christians who, who speak Aramaic want to get the gospel out, but they don't speak those languages, but God enables them to speak those languages so that those people who have come from far and wide might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own language. That's clearly undebatable what happens in Acts chapter 2. So it's a known language, unknown to the speaker, but known to the people who were listening, so that there was an interpreter. There was an interpretation of what was said. They heard and understood the gospel. Now, now some people will say that's different than Acts, I'm sorry, than 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But even here, when we, we talk about speaking in tongues, we talk about doing it in public, if there's an interpreter, which means it's a known language, right? Because if there's going to be an interpretation, somebody knows the language. And if there's not an interpreter, the text is going to go on to say, do it privately, but don't do it publicly. But, but it is still it, meaning it's not one type of tongues in public and then another type of tongues in private. There is an interpreter if it's going to be public. And if there's not an interpreter, there's no one there to do it, you don't do it publicly. But it's not a different gift. It's, it's not, I'm, I'm speaking over here with one type of tongue and, and in private in another type of tongue. It's the same tongue. It's just circumstantially, is there an interpreter present? Now, some would push back on this, and I, I, I respect this argument. Some would say, 1 Corinthians 13.1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... And they're going to make a delineation between the tongues of men and the tongues of angels. And so they're going to say, those that are able to be interpreted are the tongues of men, and those that can't be interpreted, like these uninterpretable languages that God presumably gives to some people, that is the tongues of angels. A lot of people are like, well, I've got the tongues of angels. Aren't you special? No, I'm just teasing. I understand that argument. I'm not quite convinced by it, okay? And, and I'm going to tell you why, and I get that I'm getting down in the weeds here, but, but here's the deal. I think 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 through 3 speaks in hyperbole. Doesn't mean it's wrong. I think it's absolutely right, but it's hyperbolic language. And let me show you what I mean. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and by the way, nobody has all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith and nobody has that, so as to move, remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give all away, that's, that's a real big commitment, and I deliver my body up to be burned, that's an even bigger commitment. But have not love, I gain nothing. So ultimately he's saying, look, I could do anything that is noble and, and splashy and giant, but if I don't have love, it's nothing. So this is about the primacy of love. It's, it's not about two different types of tongues. In fact, just to show you what hyperbole would look like, let's just for the sake of argument say, instead of if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, we say, if I sing in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am nothing. I'm a clanging, I'm a clanging gong or a whatever symbol. Like, if, if I said to you, hey, if I sing like Elvis or an angel, but have not love, what am I? Am I really making a delineation between how Elvis and an angel sing? Or, or am I actually saying, it doesn't matter how great I am at this endeavor, if I'm not motivated by love, what is it? And by the way, just in case you're not yet convinced, every time angels speak in Scripture, people understand them. Have you noticed that? Like when the, when the angels appear to the shepherds, at Christmas time, we're coming up on that. They don't make some pronouncement. And the shepherds are like, what are those guys talking about? They're speaking gibberish. That, that just doesn't happen. And, and so I get the argument. I'm just not fully convinced. I'm not against speaking in tongues. I'm, I'm not a cessationist if, if you're into the theological terminology. I'm not against speaking tongues. Most importantly, neither is Paul, and Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit. His only point so far is that tongues without an interpreter, without someone to translate them, doesn't build up the church. And so it shouldn't be exercised, that gift shouldn't be exercised in public. That, you can disagree with me on stuff, some stuff, but that's, that seems pretty essential or essential, or primary, or central to that, chat, that paragraph. That, it's just what it says. That's tongues. Let's talk about prophecy. The good news is, when we talk about prophecy, you probably think, well, we're trading one weird thing for another weird thing. Prophecy isn't that weird. That, that's the good news. You think of prophecy as like hocus-pocus foretelling the future. There's some of that, it's not hocus pocus, but, but there is some foretelling of the future. But the role of a prophet was not foretelling as much as it is, as it is forthtelling. So, so ultimately, prophecy is the explanation of how biblical principles apply today. And in fact, 95% of what the Old Testament prophets said was forthtelling. They, they would say to rebellious Israel, Israel, here's what God has said Here's how you are not measuring up. Woe to you. Now, think about that. The Old Testament prophets were ignored, hated, sometimes killed by Israel, not because they were foretelling the future. Like, what's the harm in that? It's because they were foretelling. They were saying, you aren't measuring up to God's standard, and you need to repent. And they said, we don't want to repent. It's just easier to kill you. Let's wrap this 
section up by rereading verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues and even more to prophesy. That's Paul being volitional. He's already said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, to some will be given this gift and to another this gift and to another and to another and to another for the common good. So, so ultimately, we know that not everyone is going to speak in tongues, nor is everyone going to prophesy, but Paul nonetheless volitionally says, look, I'm all for it. Then he says, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Tongues with interpretation, I don't know how to distinguish the interpretation from a prophetic message. So, so tongues with interpretation equals prophecy. But ultimately what he's saying is, look, if, if there's not an interpreter, it builds up the individual, not the body. It shouldn't be done in public. And the gift of prophecy is therefore superior than the gift of tongues. Let's look at the next section. It's a long section. Hang with me in this, verses 6 through 19. Now, brothers... If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or a harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible... How will anyone know what is said, for you will be speaking into the air? There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning, kind of supporting my earlier point. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. I love that about our worship at Grace Bible Church, by the way. Side note. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit... How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may, give, you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. That's Paul, not me. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. A lot going on here. To understand this text, I think we need to have a little bit of a biblical background and then a little bit of a background on the Corinthians. So let's go with the biblical background. We're going to start in Genesis 11, which sounds like the beginning of a Snickers commercial. We're going to move quickly here. Biblical background, okay? In Genesis 11, everyone is speaking the same language and they decide, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea if we built a tower up to God and we will make ourselves equal to God? This is, this is going to be a grand endeavor and we're going to put ourselves on a parallel with God. God looks down on this endeavor and he's like, gosh, they are a mess. Like this, this is not going to be good for them. It's not going to be good for anything. In his benevolence, 
He confuses people's languages. He, he gives them different languages so that they cannot communicate with each other. And they scatter all over the world. Pride creates a benevolent consequence of different languages such that they cannot conspire to make themselves equal with God, which would have been a fool's endeavor. Now let's look at verses 10 and 11. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. Now the word foreigner there, it's, it's a Greek word, barbaros, barbaros. It, it literally is a man or a woman who speaks a strange language. It, it's where we get the word barbarian. It's an onomatopoeia. This is kind of a fun fact here. It's an onomatopoeia. So if you're speaking a language that I don't understand, and it's a Middle Eastern language, what it's going to sound like to me is, Bar, 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 bar. That's literally where this word comes from. And so a barbarian was someone who spoke a foreign language and therefore was an alien. Someone who was different, weird, set apart. That's what that word means. That's what happened as a result of Genesis chapter 11 and the pride of mankind. In Acts chapter 2, God fulfills an Old Testament promise from Ezekiel chapter 36 and several other places that he would send his spirit to indwell people. This, this happens for the first time in the New Testament as a result of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And part of being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, God enables by the indwelling Holy Spirit Christians to speak the gospel to foreigners, barbarians, who were coming to celebrate Pentecost even though they couldn't understand the language barrier. God enables them to understand because he enables the Christians to speak foreign languages that they did not know so as to bring unity. He enables different languages at Pentecost so that the foreign people could be united by faith in Jesus Christ. That, that's the biblical narrative. That's, it's kind of the meta-narrative. That's the big picture here. To review, the pride of mankind caused separation, but the Spirit enabled foreigners, barbarians, to know Jesus and to be brothers. That leads us to verse 12. Now he's directing it to the Corinthians. He says, so with yourselves. Like the same principle is true. What, what has been true in the larger narrative is true in Corinth. So with yourselves. Since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. The so means, so in the same way with yourselves, this applies to you, since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, since you are so into the Spirit and spiritual gifts, ultimately saying, remember why tongues exist. You're, you're so into tongues, tongues exist for bringing people together, not for dividing people. When tongues create division, ultimately he's saying, you're abusing the gifts. You're abusing the gifts. This isn't about you. It's about the church being built up. It always was. It always was. The rest of verses 6 through 19 are a bunch of illustrations and proofs that unintelligible tongues, meaning tongues without 
interpretation, without translation, have no public value whatsoever. It's a bugle that doesn't make any sense so that the army doesn't know to go to the battlefield. It's, it, it's other musical instruments that, that you can't understand. And so there's no beauty in it. That's, that's what he's saying. I, I, I promise that's what he's saying. Which leads us to verses 20 through 25. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil... But in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written. By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, so based on what he just quoted, which is Isaiah 28, thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will, not, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he will be convicted by all. He will be called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Kind of good news and bad news here. You ready for it? The, the bad news is, for Gentiles, this is a little bit complicated. We're Gentiles because most of us don't come from a Jewish background. That's what a Gentile is. But the good news is, once you get over the Gentile thing, it's a pretty simple point. Let's start with the complicated. Verse 21. In the law, that is Isaiah 28 verses 11 and 12, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. It's something of a summation and a quotation somewhere in between those of Isaiah 28, 11 through 12. And here's what's going on in Isaiah, the southern kingdom, and that's, that's called Judah. So northern kingdom is called Israel, southern kingdom is called Judah. They're behaving badly. Okay, so they're, they're about to get punished. And, and specifically, the southern kingdom won't listen to God's plain instruction through Isaiah. So Isaiah is saying, hey, we need to repent. And, and none of the other prophets, none of the other priests are willing to listen to Isaiah. And it's because they think they're too sophisticated. Isaiah seems to be communicating directives that they deem to be simplistic and they're too sophisticated, and so they're like, childish religion. Now look, pay attention. When, when a culture decides it's moved on from, from the simplicity of godly instruction, and they become stiff-necked in their sophistication, that should sound alarms. Okay, And so ultimately what goes on from here is a quotation of verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah 28, and basically, what he's saying is, since you won't listen to the simple teachings that I have given through Isaiah, I'm going to give you something a little bit more complicated, and you're not going to hear it either. It's going to be the voice or message of judgment that comes from foreigners. The Assyrians are going to come in and absolutely demolish the Israelites. Because in their sophistication, 
they wouldn't listen to the simple things of God. And that's what verse 22 is absolutely saying. The point is that tongues are a sign of judgment to unbelievers, not the people out there, the people in here who, who have gotten too sophisticated to listen to God. And God sends foreign voices as the voice of judgment. Prophecy, on the other hand, is for believers. The clear teaching and application of Scripture that we might repent and live unto the glory of God. That's what it's about. Now you get to verses 23 through 25, and it's pretty simple. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, won't they say, you're crazy? You're cray-cray? You're cuckoo for cocoa puffs? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters... He is convicted by all, and he's called to account by all, and the secrets of his hearts are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he worships God and declares that God is really among you. So, so what do you want when the outsiders come in? You want them to go, these guys are looney tune, or do you want to go, that gospel actually makes sense. I understand it. It applies to me, and the Spirit uses that to convict hearts and change souls that God would be worshipped. Which one would you prefer? That's what he's saying. Have you ever gone into a church and, and felt like the whole place was a little cray-cray? The Victory Christian Center, 10 minutes into a time that is undeterminable because I have to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which I received, by the way, upon my belief in Jesus. So I'm waiting for something that I already have so that I can go up and speak in tongues and then be dismissed to go on about my sinful day. <laughs> I get up with Mary. She's kind of, you know, holding her. And we go out to the back door, and, and there's an usher there, and he opens the door, and he speaks to me. But I don't understand it. And I, I'm a little rattled. And I'm like, I, I, I'm sorry, what? And I'm not trying to argue with anyone. I, I literally, I was like, Maybe I just misheard him. And he speaks again, and he's talking to me in a language that I do not understand, and I think he knows that I don't understand it, and I clearly do not have the gift of interpretation. And I mean, we walked out of there, and we were like, man, that, that was weird. And, and when I read this, I, I identify with the outsider in that situation. And so I looked up the word outsider because when the usher spoke to me and I couldn't understand him, I definitely felt like an outsider. Do you know what the Greek word for outsider is? Idiotes. <laughs> Guess what English word we get from idiotes? Literally, idiot. I did some additional reading. Idiotes does not mean as it does today, a deficiency in natural capacity to understand. No, no. That might be true. It's just not true from this word. It literally means a common man, an untrained man, or an unskilled man. Like just, just a normal Joe. So what if the normal Joe comes in and he feels anything but normal? 
Paul's like, that's a problem. That's, that's a big problem, and it's an understandable problem. And that's why prophecy, which a normal Joe can understand, is a lot better than words spoken in tongues that cannot be interpreted. In the end, all it's saying is it's better to prophesy than it is to speak in tongues. Because if people hear you and understand you, they might be convicted, they might fall down on their face and worship God, and that seems like a win. I know we kind of went down a rabbit hole today, and I know it's a lot. Let's just quickly in review to finish, raise our eyes a little bit and look at the big picture again. Spiritual gifts are given for the common good. So the gift that God has given you, and it it could be any number of different gifts, but the gift that God has given you, he has given that you might edify the body, that you might build the body up. That's, That's why he gave you whatever gift he gave you. So spiritual gifts are given for the common good, and we should exercise those gifts because we love people. Like, love is the primary motivation. That's 1 Corinthians 13. So they're given, 1 Corinthians 12, for the common good. They they are given as an expression of love, chapter 13. And ultimately, if we are loving people and we are using our gifts, we are building up our brothers and sisters in Christ and the church is healthy. Fixation on tongues, on the other hand, which is common in Corinth at the time without an interpreter to to tell people, to tell the common Joe what's going on, doesn't edify the body, is of no value and can be divisive. I think those are clearly principles found in this scripture. Our greater attention, therefore, should be toward teaching the church the ways of God so that they can continue to invest in other people that they might be employed in the service of God. What does that sound like? Disciple-making, right? Did, did you really think we wouldn't get back to that? Come on, people. That's where the church grows. That's where the church is most glorious. That's where there is conviction of sin. That's where there is the mobilization of the priesthood of believers. You don't, you don't have to agree with everything I said today. You don't. But the big picture there, gifts are given for the common good, we're motivated by love and the exercise of the gifts, ultimately the gifts that enable the priesthood of believers to be mobilized and edified and the church is built up that God might be glorified. Hard to argue with that, right? It's really all I'm contending for today. Let's pray. Lord, there's plenty I don't understand. And as a guy who's supposed to speak authoritatively about your scriptures, I I just want to confess that before the people who are here. But, But Father, there is some things that are easily discernible in this passage that I pray by the conviction of your Holy Spirit, we would exercise, whether we have the gift of tongues or not, Lord, I pray whatever gift we have, we would 
exercise them not for self-glory, but for the good of the people around us. I pray that we would live in community and that we would sharpen each other and we would use the gifts you have given us to do so, Father. Father, in the end, I, I pray that we would be a people who understand what the church is and we understand our roles in the church, that we might be mobilized to exercise our gifts for your glory. I pray that outsiders, when they come in, even if they don't understand everything, that they would understand that there is something healthy, something good and glorious about the community that we live in. And I pray that they would ultimately trust in your son Jesus and be saved and join the body of Christ. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.